So how's your hope quotient today? Uh, 10 high, one being uh, low, near zero. Um, is it high, medium, or low? Where's your hope quotient today? I'd like you to take a moment or two, give you a couple minutes, talk with the neighbor about that. What is filling you with hopefulness today? Talk to your neighbor about that. Or what's draining you of hope? What's going on in your life that maybe is kind of like your hope quotient is like ooh, down there? So talk about that for a couple minutes. If you're comfortable, you don't have to talk to anybody. But I dare you to share with a neighbor, where's your hope quotient today and why? What's, what's causing it to be high or low? All right, I'd like to know, just if you dare, you can, well, if you'd like to, raise your hand. Do we have any eight, nine, or tens out there today? Hope, okay, we have some eight, nine, and ten. How about uh, down to that five or below range? Any, yeah, okay, sometimes life, and some of you didn't raise your hand because you're not sure. Um, there, there was no right or wrong answer, by the way. Global events have a way of bringing us down, especially you news junkies. I, I would suggest you read your Bibles a little bit more. <laughs> People are looking for leaders to give us hope. People are looking for situations in life to just be steady. And life isn't so steady. You've heard uh, many people say shalom which is a peace, the peace of God, which is, is more than just no war, but it's soul peace. It's being satisfied in life. It's flourishing. It's being at peace physically and, and in your soul and peace with God. And, and that's what God is bringing to us. There isn't anywhere in the world where almost every person would say, I just want a good job. I want to provide for my family. I want my needs met. I want to be comfortable. I want to be satisfied with life. And we're looking for someone to lead us there. And that brings us to today's scripture. Because John the Baptist asked a question that might surprise us. He asked Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? I mean, what's going on here? with John. 
John the Baptist, isn't he the prophet who was sent by God to tell people that they should turn to God and they should repent, turn away from their sins and be ready to meet Messiah? Isn't John the one who said, behold, the lamb that takes away the sins of the world? Yes, that's the one. That's the John. He was in a prison cell. John was in prison because he obeyed God rather than people. He feared God more than he feared what people would say. And it seems as though John might be doubting Jesus is the Messiah, or I believe it's more that he's being impatient with Jesus' ministry timeline. But when you're in a prison cell, you have time to think about things, and I can see how doubts might rise. So today, I just want to dig a little deeper in this morning and to see what Jesus says about John and what he says about John has impact on what Jesus, who Jesus is. It has implications about that. And then I hope, I hope, that your hope quotient, if it's down low today or medium today, will just be raised a notch or two, a couple levels, because we remember who John the Baptist was and who Jesus is, because John was right. Jesus is the Son of God, the Lamb that's taking away the sins of the world. So let's take a look at the passage together. John's question for Jesus. In verses 18 through 23, Jesus addresses, uh, John has some questions. Was John doubting? John saw the Holy Spirit come down on Jesus when he was baptized in the form of a dove. He told people that Jesus was the chosen Lamb of God that was going to take away the world's sins. And John even understood that Jesus' ministry was going to rise and become greater while John decreased in popularity and fame because he was the lesser, Jesus was the greater. So why would John ask this question, are you the one or should we look for another? Hey, Jesus, remember me? You said you were coming to set the prisoners free. Well, I'm in prison, and I've been doing God's work. How about rescuing me? I could see him thinking that. I really believe John had wrong expectations about when and how Jesus, the Messiah, was going to bring God's kingdom into the world. Remember a little bit earlier, John had confronted King Herod, right? King Herod was, was uh, living in an adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. And John confronted him. And John was thrown in prison. And it's like John saying to Jesus, I thought you were coming not only to bring hope, but to bring your holiness and judgment into the world. What's going on? Maybe he expected Herod to repent, like Jesus would confront him and, and Herod would change his mind. I'm sitting in this prison cell. Is this how becoming lesser has to end for me, Jesus? John, and I lean hard that John was just doubting, not doubting, but being impatient with how God, how Jesus was bringing his salvation and the kingdom timeline into the world. If you look in your Bibles, if you have them open, just back a few pages in John chapter 3, uh, David Mingle had, had preached on this a few weeks ago. He, uh, John had announced how John was coming and going to be preaching 
not only deliverance, but judgment. In verse 7 it says, And he said there to the crowds who came out to him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he talks to them about uh, there's going to be judgment, how an axe is going to be laid at the root of the trees and cut down if they're not fruitful. A little bit later in verse 15 he says, And the people were asking questions, Are you the Christ? And John said, No. I baptize you with water, but the one to come, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to bring judgment. He's going to burn up the chaff. So he's talking about not only deliverance, but judgment. And then Jesus, in chapter 4, when he introduces himself, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he quotes from Isaiah, chapter 61, and he talks about all this deliverance to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But Jesus stops there, and he doesn't mention, and the day of vengeance of our God. Why would Jesus drop that scripture? Because God's judgment was coming, is coming, But God's timeline for his great and final wrath is different than ours. God's different than me. I want justice now. I want the world to be straightened out now. How about you? Yeah, raise your hand. (laughs) But wait a minute. God's patient. He's compassionate. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He would rather save us than condemn us. That's why Jesus came, to save us, not to condemn us. Peter, one of those fiery disciples, learned this as he walked with Jesus, as the Spirit of God taught him after Jesus was gone. In his third and his second letter, in verse chapter 3, verse 9, Peter wrote this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all should turn or reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So Peter just is telling us along, and he's kind of saying, be patient. God is going to fix things, but just be patient. Because he is patient with our sinfulness. He wants more people to come to faith. Are you a believer in Christ this morning? I hope so. Aren't you glad that you came to recognize your sinfulness and your need for a Savior before Jesus returned and cast you into eternal judgment and wrath before you understood and believed? It's wonderful to be a part of God's kingdom, and he wants to do that with more people around us today. I think John was just asking Jesus, clarify what you're up to. What are you doing, Jesus? Yes, preach the good news of salvation. Heal the blind, heal diseases, cast out demons, raise the dead, but don't forget your part about judgment. Aren't you going to bring some judgment here? And Jesus is saying, telling us and him, just wait. Don't rush it. I'm doing the works of mercy that God the Father, my Father, sent me to do. 
I'm doing the work I'm called to do. I'm being faithful to the mission. Don't stumble over me. Don't be offended by how Jesus fixes the world and saves humanity. Embrace it. Don't stumble over him. I love what Leon Moore says. He says, Jesus, speaking of Jesus, he might not represent the kind of deliverer Israel expected, but he's the savior they needed. And he's the savior we need as well. So John's wrestling with God's time, timing in his life. Have you ever wrestled with God and his timing in your life? God, what are you doing? But be glad about this truth. Jesus is gracious and patient with us, with our doubts, with our misunderstandings. Don't stumble over Jesus, by putting your human, my human expectations on how God ought to do things and what he's up to in the world. What are we to do when we wonder what God's up to, when we kind of have those doubts, when we're impatient with God answering our requests, our prayers, our, our holy desires that, that he, we, we think he ought to listen to and, and things he ought to do? Ask your questions like John did. But then... Study Jesus' life. Look at what I'm doing, John. Blind or seen. Dead or being raised. The poor are hearing the gospel. They're, they're entering God's kingdom. They might not be rich here, but they're going to be rich in the very near future. John, see what's going on. I'm doing the Father's work. Are you the one, Jesus? Well, you see, Jesus says... I am the one, John. Look at what's happening. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I am the Messiah. Believe in me. Don't doubt me. That's what he's telling us together today. After John's disciples left, Jesus then, secondly, he, he asks questions about John. Look, let's pick up the action again. Look at the text in, John, in uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you see? What did you go out into, into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before my face who will prepare your way before you. So Jesus is asking the crowds, Who is John the Baptist? He wanted us and them to make sure they knew the answer so that they wouldn't miss who Jesus was. That's why he asked the question. And Jesus here is commending John. He's affirming who John is. He's saying, yes, he was the prophet that God promised to send before the Lord would come. When you saw John, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Did you see a reed? Reeds are easily swayed in the wind. Did you go out to see someone easily swayed by people's opinions who, who, who did this or that or were a people pleaser? Absolutely not. John stayed true to the message. Did you go out to see someone dressed in fine clothes? Absolutely not. 
He wore uh, camel's hair. He ate locust and honey. He was a tough guy. He was one of those wilderness survival kind of people. He wasn't an easy guy to follow. He had a fiery message. He was no softy. What did you go out to see? Why would anyone go out to see this strange man dressed in funny clothes living out in the wilderness? Because God was drawing their hearts to him because he was speaking God's word. And they needed to hear it. They knew they needed to hear it. So who did you go out to see? That's a key question, and there's an important answer. You saw more than a prophet. You saw the promised prophet. Malachi, chapter 3. The last words of God given to God's people in the Old Testament. 400 years between Malachi and when Jesus was born. 400 years of silence, so to speak, when God didn't add any new revelation to his written word. And what do we hear in the last chapter of Malachi? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? So some of the last words of God were being spoken about John the Baptist in the Old Testament. Not only about the Messiah, but the one who was to come before Messiah. So it's significant. If John is the prophet referred to by Malachi, then who is Jesus? He's the Messiah, just like John said. In the not-too-distant future in the book of Luke, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is going to ask the disciples, his followers, who do the people say that I am? And what did the people say? Well, they said, yeah, he's a great prophet, maybe Elijah. Uh, we don't know. But then he turned to them and he said, who do you say that I am? If Jesus is God and Savior, and you say that, you believe that, how will you live differently today, this week? God's life-changing grace is at work in our hearts, people of God. And he wants to transform us into better people, holier people, people who love God more than they love the world. That's a work of God, but yet we have an active part in that work of obeying. When I was preparing this message, it made me want to pray, and I kind of put it up on a slide, parts of it. So. You can keep your eyes open, but pray this with me right now. Lord Jesus, help us to believe the truth about you. Help us to believe like the centurion, that with a word, when you, when you so will it, you can heal, you can raise the dead. Lord, help us, to, 
Help us to believe who you are and turn our straying hearts toward your ways. You have the power to change us, Lord, so we love our enemies and bless those who curse us. So first of all, Lord, before you do anything else, make us new people and then use us to be your ambassadors. Send us in your might, like you sent John the Baptist into the world to tell the good news that the Christ has come and we can be saved. Now, I just prayed, but my sermon's not over. Okay. <laughs> Jesus uses his, uses his questions about John, and he uses John's questions about him to point people to the truth that Jesus is the Savior. So there's some important truths here that Jesus wants you and me to know. Look at verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What in the world is Jesus saying here? It seems like it, this doesn't make sense when you first read it. How can John be the greatest, and yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John? If John's the greatest, how can someone like me or you or us be greater than John? Well, Jesus is saying here that the old era is gone and something better and greater has come. You don't want to be stuck back in John the Baptist day or the old covenant day, even though there were some great things God was doing. John declared that people needed to repent, to turn away from their sins, to prepare to meet their God, to admit that they were failing to short that they were falling short of God's requirements, that they were messing up, that they admitted they need God's help to believe and then to follow him. And John's message was true. God's message was vital, but it wasn't the final word. It was just pointing to the last message from God, that Jesus is the Christ. And those who believed John's words and repented and got baptized and identified with John's ministry, they were right to do that. But then they couldn't stay there. They had to move on and look to Jesus, who is the greater, who's, the greater, who's bringing the greater kingdom kingdom. To hang back and stay with John's teaching and not look ahead and to see Jesus and follow him was falling short of being greater. So what is Jesus saying? The old is gone, something new, the final word, the last word, you need know nothing else but this has come. The final word is here. You're familiar maybe with 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We turn to these verses a lot. If anyone is in Christ, if we've believed in Christ, we're a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The old is gone if I'm in Christ. I have to let go of the old, my old ways, my old past, and move on ahead to better things with Christ. The Apostle Paul put it this way in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. Listen to these verses. This is the great Apostle Paul. And here's what he said about his life. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to take hold of Christ. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. They say that you should pretend that you're moving every five years so that you get rid of all the clutter in your house that you don't really need. That's a really good principle. <laughs> if you haven't done that in a while, you ought to do that. You'd be surprised what you have that you forgot that you had, that you haven't used, and that you don't really need. Somebody else could use it at the sup and swap whenever the next one is. Think about doing that every month, every week in your soul. Getting rid of the clutter that keeps you from pressing forward, that distracts you from following God and loving the Lord Jesus Christ the way we should. Clean it out. Confess those sins to God and then to one another. Letting go of those unkind, careless, unholy habits that keep us from following Christ like we should. To press on to new and better things. The greater things. Because John was pointing people, great ministry. It's not like John's truth was almost the truth and then Jesus' truth is all the truth. It was all truth. But Jesus' truth is the final word. There's nothing more we need to know or believe to receive eternal life. God's counsel in his word just repeatedly says, you have a great cloud of witnesses, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, that surround us. They believed in God. They trusted God. They followed him. Do the same. Cut loose all those sins that weigh us down. Let me read it. <laughs> Therefore, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let's lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostilities against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Wow. Letting go of the past, pushing on, looking to Christ. Let that stir up our faithfulness. Let me just encourage you about that today. I just went because I didn't realize it was so late. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Talk about it soon with someone. What's getting in the way of you moving forward more faithfully and strongly with Christ? Have you thought about it? Talk about it at home today. Talk about it in your life group, your small groups this week, or at a Bible study. Are you in the faith and pressing on toward Christ? Are you stuck in old ways, old thinking patterns, and not letting them go that are weighing you down? Ask God to open up your eyes. I encourage you to talk about it. 
What's the right response to John and Jesus? Well, look at verse 29 of our chapter. I got to get back there myself. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To wait, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What's the correct response to John? Well, the Pharisees and the lawyers, most of them, the majority of them missed it. They didn't humble themselves. They didn't get identified with John's message because they thought they were too good to do that. John's message was true. And the people that heard it and believed it and acted on it and, and, and by getting baptized, they did the right thing. Their actions showed that they were in touch and in tune with God. John's life was like a dirge. You know what a dirge is, right? It's a sad song. It's a, it's a, it's a, a melancholy melody. John's message was tough. Get ready to meet God. He would have been standing out in the street corners here with a sandwich board on, you know? It's like, repent today, or you're in trouble. Get right with God. Nobody wants to hear that message, right? Such a downer, such a dirge. But he lived his life in step with God, and he was proof that his message was right and true and should have been responded to. Many wrote off John's message because it was too extreme, too hard, too difficult. Weeping and admitting you're sinful, everybody sins. Admitting we're failing to love God and our neighbor like we should, I'll worry about that tomorrow. See, that's the wrong response. John's message was like a dirge. But it needed to be heard. It needed to be received. It needed to be believed. So the correct response was to weep over your sins, as John said, to turn from them, to repent. There's also a correct response to Jesus. Jesus' words are the final revelation needed. John was pointing not only to the message of Jesus, but to Jesus himself, who is the Savior that needs to be believed in. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one gets to heaven. No one gets to see the Father except through Christ. Jesus played the flute, the happy music of deliverance. That's why he came the first time. And he's inviting you to join heaven's dance. Now, you, you all know I don't dance very well, right? But we should be dancing, at least inside. If you've believed in Christ, he's invited you to enjoy deliverance, and that's a celebration moment, 
not a dirge moment, not a sad moment. It's a happy moment. Jesus speaks of forgiveness and grace, of favor and feasting. He seeks sinners and he transforms them and he makes some followers who are worthy to be called children of God. It's all by his love and his grace, his death on the cross for us. Follow me and I'll make you a person who brings hope to a world that is filled with hopelessness. I'll make you a worker in my kingdom. So ponder this, people. So many people rejected John's message because it was too negative. So many people reject Jesus' message because it's too grace-filled. So which do you want? Believe both. Repent. Admit your need and turn to Christ who worked on the cross, who died there so we could live with God again and forever. Now, sometimes it's correct to speak fiery like John did. And other times to speak gently and graciously. And Jesus did both. So many people are confused about God. That he loves them. That his plan is better than anything we can come up with in the world for life and love and who we are. And they don't understand the truth about Jesus. Or they think they're too far gone or they don't care. We need to speak firmly and wisely and gently like doves at times. Where will you be this time tomorrow? Good question. Where will you be this week? Who are you going to meet? New people? Old people? Are you prepared to say a word of hope that encourages people to join the dance of heaven. Are you dancing today? John's message was true and those who received it were right. They move forward to greater things when they look to Jesus. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. What did Abraham, you know that guy in the Old Testament in Genesis, what did Abraham know about God? So much that he knew that he dared to move to a new land, to a strange country that he didn't know anything about. He just trusted God. What did Abraham know? What did Moses know? Here he was in the king's courts, Pharaoh's courts in Egypt. But what did he know that he was willing to turn his back on all that stuff and be identified with people who were enslaved and poor and beaten down and trodden on? What did he know about God? What did he learn about God that he dared become a deliverer in God's work? What did Daniel and his friends know about God? There they were in a strange land. They were willing to be thrown into a fiery furnace rather than turn their backs on God, willing to be thrown into a lion's den rather than turn their backs on God. What did they know about their God and the kingdom that was coming that made them willing to die and to suffer and to be different because they knew it was better? What drove those disciples to drop their nets, to leave the tax booth 
to turn their backs on what they knew and loved and what brought security to follow Jesus. What did they know? What do you know about Jesus? Hear John's call to repentance. And then hear Jesus' amazing news, good news of forgiveness that he offers you. I urge you to act on it today if you haven't. Let's pray. Lord God, Lord Jesus, God and Savior, your word is true. Your salvation is powerful. It can change people from sinners to saints, from hateful to lovers, from unholy to pure and noble actions and words. Lord, help us to believe it today. Move in hearts today completely. Change us so that the world can know that you truly are Lord and Savior. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.